Luckily, Cryptids and Critters is intended for mature audiences. Many of our topics may involve violent, sexual, or otherwise heavy themes that may be difficult for some listeners. Luckily, Cryptids and Critters, a podcast where we discuss various cryptids, monsters, and things that go bump in the night. I'm Loki Lee, your resident armchair anthropologist and Scandinavian scholar. And I'm Lee, your resident redneck and wannabe historian of Slavic and paranormal folklore. Alright, hello everybody, thank you for joining us once again. Today's topic will be on... Slavic vampire folklore, that being the Eastern European and Balkan and Russian interpretation of vampires. In this episode, we will be spoiling a couple of things. There will be spoilers for Bram Stoker's Dracula, there will be spoilers for the 1922 film Nosferatu, and there will be spoilers for the 2021 Mike Flanagan miniseries on Netflix, Midnight Mass. So beware if you haven't yet watched any of those or if you care about spoilers for them. We will be using some of the details from those episodes to talk about this. So if I can start out, Loki, can I ask you to just give me a one to three sentence description uh, off the top of your head? No preparation, no notes, no discussion in advance. What is a vampire? A vampire is an undead creature, or in some mythology, their heartbeat is just really, really slow. Generally, they have long, sharp canines that they use to pierce flesh and drink blood out of humans, or sometimes other creatures, depending on the myths. I know they're basically everywhere. Everybody knows the Transylvanian vampires, but there's also, like, Filipino vampires and... I'm sure there are, there's Japanese vampires, there's Chinese vampires, I'm sure there's Mexican vampires or Mesoamerican vampires that I'm unaware of at the moment. Yeah, they're undead creatures that suck the blood out of humans and can't go into the sunlight or else they will burst into flames. That's a good jumping off point. A big theme of today will be how Dracula, specifically the novel and film interpretations of Bram Stoker's novel Dracula, changed understandings of what vampires are in the West and how uh, some things are off from the original mythology. And, and, and that's a good place to talk about the pop culture angle, which we'll get to. So... Mm -hmm. Uh, For our purposes, the Slavic interpretation of a vampire can be a little fuzzy. And this is a feature of Slavic, Russian, Eastern European folklore as a whole 
these things are often blurry, right? Um, when we think of pop culture, especially uh, vampires, we often think of popular franchises that are like vampires versus werewolves versus witches versus shapeshifters. Mm -hmm. And in Slavic folklore, traditionally, if you are one of those things, you are probably also some mix of the other ones. If you're a vampire, you're probably also a werewolf, and you're probably also a witch. Oh, interesting. If you're a witch, you're probably also a vampire. So in pop culture, these things get really hard-lined, siloed, and, and sort of blocked off from each other. Um, but in, in the original folklore, they're, they're not all that separate. And a lot of the terms used in the primary sources can actually be interchangeable. So you'll be, you'll be reading about a strigoi, a vampire, and all of a sudden you'll be reading about witches. Okay. And you will think that the narrative in your primary source has changed to a different subject and actually hasn't because they're using descriptors interchangeably. So basically what we can boil down a vampire to in, in a Slavic context, a vampire is a ghost that comes back from the dead either in spiritual form or it possesses its deceased corpse to drink the blood of the living or eat the flesh of the living or suffocate the living. This is an interesting thing. In Slavic folklore, vampires don't always drink blood. Sometimes mm -hmm. they're animals, sometimes they steal souls, sometimes they suffocate. But in like Western pop culture, the central characteristic of a vampire is that it drinks blood yeah and in slavic folklore it doesn't always have to drink blood the the central theme is that it is the spirit or soul of a deceased human that has returned to the earth to harm people who were close to the the dead person mm -hmm. there are a lot of different types of vampires, major and minor. They get pronounced in a number of ways and they have a bunch of different names, but but as I said, they're often interchangeable, even though there are like subtle differences. Those subtle differences aren't always marked in the primary sources. So, all right, Loki, let's try this one on for a size. How do you become a vampire? What makes a vampire? Oh, there's a lot of different ways to become a vampire. One of the most common that everybody knows is you get bit by a vampire and you drink the vampire's blood. And then after you die from blood loss, you return as a vampire. I think other ones depend on how you died and... I'm blanking on other ways, but you're you're hitting the greatest hits for sure. Yeah. Yeah, the most common that I'm aware of is you drink you drink the vampire's blood after it's drained you of yours and after you die you get reanimated as a vampire. Ah, uh, fluid exchange. Right, right. Yep. That's interesting the way that western folklore has moved the needle on that. All right. So, being bitten by a vampire in the original Slavic folklore does not turn one into a vampire. And depending on, on which series of books you read, they'll, they'll have different rules. Sometimes a vampire has to bite a person several times. Sometimes the vampire has to exchange blood with a person. Sometimes a single bite from a vampire is enough to turn you into a vampire. In Slavic folklore, it's much more connected to personal morality. The, the central theme of what makes a vampire in Slavic folklore 
is an immoral life. Okay. Uh, so a, a couple of sure ways to become a vampire is to is to be an evil person in life. There are also some things about like legends of people being born with two souls or two hearts, being born uh, with teeth. For instance, a baby born with teeth is almost certainly going to end up becoming a vampire after death. Well, that's good news for me. Oh, you were you were born with a full set of teeth. Not a full set, but... With several of them? Mm-hmm. I started teething at like a month and a half. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I got all, right. all of my top front teeth and bottom front teeth at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you're one to watch, for yeah. sure. Uh, so <laughs> we, gotta keep, we gotta keep an eye on Loki for that. The last one you hit as well, which is like cause of death. A suicide is almost certain to result in becoming a vampire. As is like a sudden unexpected death, maybe a, a murder or a farming accident or, you know, something as random as like a, a brain aneurysm, which they may not have understood yeah. at the time, right? So having your life cut short before your time in a dramatic way is a is a sure sign to becoming a vampire. Now, the, the central idea is if you're an evil person in life or almost an unfortunate person or for a lot of Slavic folklore especially from the peasant point of view those incidents of a life being cut short uh, like a suicide or a brain aneurysm those are almost certainly indicators that you did something to to anger god in a eastern orthodox christian sense right and that, that's where most of the the writing around vampires comes from is it, it comes from slavic tradition after eastern orthodox christianity is prevalent in that part of the world the vampire myths do extend to uh, Kievan Rus and the pre-Christian Slavs where they worship the death god Perun. Mm-hmm. They, they do extend there, but we don't have that much writing on that subject. Way more gets written about the subject after Christianity comes along and, of course, incorporates those myths as demons against which Christianity can, can buffer and defend, right? Mm-hmm. Now, that's the way religious colonization works. You come in... You take local beliefs and traditions and you just incorporate them into the liturgical calendar and in the sort of dogma around the religion, right? And you adapt that way. Yeah, and you often demonize the old gods and old beliefs in a lot of ways. Yeah, 100%. All right. In Western folklore, or or to your knowledge, Loki, how do you kill a vampire? <laughs> There's a lot of different ways to kill a vampire. You can run a stake through its heart. You can cut off its head. You can get it to stay out past dawn. I think in some instances you can trick it into a church. Yeah, those are all the ones off the top of my head. So I will start with my favorite, which is getting the vampire to stay out until dawn. Mm -hmm. Or getting the vampire to, to come into sunlight. In Slavic folklore, there is not a single thing that stops a vampire from coming out during the day. Okay. From what I can tell from my research, and I've, I've read this in a, in a couple of books on the subject. I'll get to those books here in a minute. Recommended reading. The first instance I can find anywhere of mention of sunlight killing a vampire is uh, the 1922 film Nosferatu. Hmm. At the end of the movie, the vampire is tricked into drinking a woman's blood. Until the sun comes up, they throw open the blinds, and the vampire vanishes okay. in the sunlight. And from there, you get other instances of sunlight killing a vampire, up to and including you know things like Midnight Mass, which recently came out. 
Yeah. So that is almost entirely a Western tradition spin on the subject. It's a cool little feature that, that gets incorporated. So we can move on to the next most common one, which is a stake through the heart. Stake through the heart is a Slavic thing. That's true. That's correct. The interesting thing is a stake through the heart doesn't always do the trick. It's a pretty good method, but the idea is really to hold the heart down to the earth. So there are a couple of instances of, for instance, of like a story from 1706 where a shepherd staked a vampire and the vampire responded with kind of a joke like, thank you for giving me a stick to ward off the dogs. <laughs> Warding off the dogs may sound like a random thing at first uh, to listeners who don't know a lot about vampires, but this is like a feature of Slavic vampire folklore. Vampires don't like dogs, especially black dogs. Interesting. This has actually made its way into a couple of Western traditions. In Stephen King's Salem's Lot, the first thing the vampires do when they come to the town is, is they kill the black dogs in town. Huh. I think uh, this happens in Midnight Mass as well. First thing the vampires do is they, they kill the, the one black dog on the island, right? Yeah, it's not done by anyone who's a vampire yet in the film. It's just Ooh, done by right. some nasty lady, some nasty church lady. You're right, you're right. So I need to go back and rewatch that and see if she, when she kills the dog, if she's doing it out of hatred or if she already knows that there's vampires. Because later in the thing, she, she becomes full in, 100% hook, line, and sinker into the vampire cult. Yeah. I don't know if when she kills the dog, she is. That would be really interesting if uh, she, she kills the dog beforehand, just out of general meanness. And a black dog warding off vampires is a, is a common theme in, in Slavic folklore. That would be interesting. Yeah. Other ways to stop a vampire include some ones that are kind of interesting and kind of goofy. And this is where I really love this subject. One of the things the Hellboy comics do really well is they highlight the quirky, macabre, sort of goofy nature of folklore. For instance, one sure way to stop a vampire is to fill the coffin full of poppy seeds or grains of rice. Oh, is, yeah, because yeah, yeah, they yeah. have to count them all, right? They have to count them all at the rate of one per year. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. There's a cartoon at some point where people are being chased by a vampire, and they turn around and they throw, like, Skittles or something on the ground, and the vampire's like, oh, why'd you have to go and do that? And the vampire stops chasing them and, and picks up the, the Skittles or whatever they threw counting them. There are a couple of other things. Placing cloves of garlic into the coffin or garlic flowers into the coffin. Placing a coin underneath the tongue of the corpse. The feet or hands of a corpse would often be mutilated to keep the individual from being able to harm people when they come back to life. Okay. Archaeological sites have found things such as uh, iron rods nailed through the brain and through the tongue and through the heart, piercing the tongue and, and locking it down to the, the jaw is a common thing. And then a couple of years back, this was in National Geographic, the, the pictures uh, from the from the archaeological site are, are amazing. They found a corpse with its hands and feet removed. And the jaw was actually distended and a, a red clay brick was, was shoved into the mouth of the corpse so it couldn't, couldn't uh, bite down. All this is done after death, by the way. They don't do this to people yeah. who are alive. You can also bury a corpse face down so that when they wake up, they don't know which way is up. Burying a corpse at a crossroad is pretty common because if it, 
wakes up and won't know which way to go. And sinking a corpse in a river is pretty common because vampires are not believed to be able to cross running water of their own accord. This is included in a, in a lot of uh, folklore, like Dracula has mm -hmm. to arrange for humans to move him across the ocean. Same thing in Salem's Lot. The vampires have to arrange to be moved over running water. Yeah, and it was basically the same thing in Midnight Mass because yeah. the priest got vampirized and was like, oh, cool, I have to take this vampire back to this island with me. <laughs> yeah, so, so on that, let's start the pop culture conversation because I want to talk about some things like that in Midnight Mass especially, right? So Midnight Mass is really interesting because it takes a hardcore Catholic approach to vampirism and its themes at large. And that's interesting because Catholicism is close to, but not exactly aligned with Eastern Orthodox Christianity, where a lot of these myths come from for the Western tradition. So as Loki mentioned earlier, other cultures do have blood-sucking monster myths that we today would think of as vampires, including Middle Eastern demons, Filipino demons, absolutely Mesoamerican, what we would think of today as Mexican demons, absolutely the Aztecs had had blood-drinking monsters. Uh, yeah. Before, 100%. And even in Old Norse mythology, there's the Draugr, which isn't exactly a vampire, but has a lot of similarities to like Slavic vampires, it sounds like. Yeah, 100%. So in Midnight Mass, there is a priest who is visiting the Holy Land of Jerusalem, and he gets lost and wanders off the road to Damascus. He stumbles into a long-lost ruin and is bitten and drained of his blood by a strange-looking creature with wings that because of his indoctrination into his Catholic beliefs, he interprets to be an angel of the Lord. And the the viewer is watching this and it's clearly a vampire. It's a stereotypical vampire. It's a it's a naked, bald, pale creature with sharp ears, pointy teeth, and bat wings that can't come into direct sunlight. So so to any like horror movie fan from the Western tradition the thing's obviously immediately a vampire. Now, the priest, believing this to be an angel of the Lord and seeing that having done a blood exchange with the creature, his uh, Alzheimer's, I believe, uh, or dementia, I can't remember if he has Alzheimer's or dementia, but that is cured for him and he de-ages by about 80 years and he reverts to like his younger self. So he arranges to sneak this thing from the Middle East back to this little island they live on, I believe in New England, and he starts slowly giving everyone who comes to his little Catholic church the vampire's blood through communion. And people start experiencing miracles. A young girl in a wheelchair, the, the wound that caused her to be paralyzed from the waist down, is undone because of the vampire blood. And in the middle of a sermon, he asks her to stand up and take communion. And the congregation all sees a little girl in a wheelchair uh, suddenly cured and able to walk so she can take communion. And the whole congregation interprets that, obviously, as a miracle. And yeah. from there, the priest has them hook, line, and sinker. As soon as they see the miracle, I turned to Nicole and I was like, he has them now. Yeah. So from there, the plot gets more insidious. You discover that the, the priest is basically trying to turn everyone into this town into a vampire he believes for religious reasons. And because of this, he is able to incorporate the hatred of a woman 
named Bev who helps out at the at the church and the local school. And she's a very stereotypical fanatic type character. The type of person who, who specifically uses their Christian religious beliefs to hurt others or to make herself feel superior to others. That type of like really nasty false believer that anyone who lives in America will, will be intimately uh, familiar with, right? I'm related to a few people like that. Sure, sure. Uh, I, I, th I think most of us probably have uh, have an aunt or an uncle that, that we would see in, in Bev's character very clearly. So there's your synopsis. But where this becomes interesting is in Eastern Orthodoxy as well as Catholicism, the act of communion or the, the Eucharist is a religious ritual by which wine and bread, or in Catholicism, wine and these little... Um, like little wafer things. They call them wafers. What they are is they're little white wheat crackers. A religious tradition is done at the altar. Some important words are said, and it is understood by believers that the bread or the wafer and the wine have been transformed into the flesh and blood of Christ. Literally, not metaphorically, literally. You're, you're watching a supernatural miracle take place in front of your eyes if you believe in those traditions. Yeah. And in that way, the writer of the series, Flanagan, uses the vampire lore to talk about the insidiousness of how religious belief can be twisted to create trauma and, and guilt and oppression, right? So he uses that religious experience that a lot of his viewers will be familiar with, and he uses that vampire mythology to blend together to create uh, a lot of interesting things about religious trauma, specifically Catholic trauma, but anyone who grew up uh, in the Christian tradition will understand the themes of the miniseries as well, e even if you're not Catholic, because, look, I think you and me talked about this uh, yeah. just separately as we were just chatting the way the priest preaches in Midnight Mass, no Catholic congregation would stand for that because the priest preaches like an evangelical Southern Baptist minister, yelling, slamming his hand on the podium, shouting at people, inviting audience participation, and that is not how Catholic ceremonies goes. Catholic Masses are very serious, stern, formal solemn occasions there's no screaming there's yeah, they're incredibly somber yeah they're very very somber if a catholic priest started slamming his hand on the altar and shouting in sermon especially in a place that was like a small new england fishing community those people would be scandalized and they wouldn't come back to church until a new priest was sent. Yeah. They, they would be absolutely scandalized. The, the way I would say it is like, it's the same thing as if your preacher came into the, the church streaking. Yeah. You would be completely pearl clutching scandalized because it's inappropriate, unacceptable behavior in that setting. Right. Yeah. But Midnight Mass does a couple of interesting things with how blood transfusion creates a vampire. It incorporates the black dog myth, which which I need to rewatch it again and, and see if the dog is killed because the vampires are coming or if the dog being killed is a coincidence that happens to line up. Yeah, my remembering from watching it is it's a coincidence. I don't think Bev at the time, because Bev killed the dog, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
yeah, I don't think she at the time uh, had known about the vampires. I don't even think she had known that the priest, Paul, I think he called himself, was... Their own preacher. There's, yeah. what, John Pruitt? Something like that? Yeah. Yeah, I think she just killed the dog because she's a mean person and she doesn't like the guy that owned the dog. Okay, that's interesting. So so another place that that lines up is uh, Midnight Mass. If you haven't read the if you haven't read the book Salem Slaughter, seen any of the adaptations of Salem's Law, you won't know this. Midnight Mass owes a shit ton to Salem's Lot, including using small town politics mm-hmm. and vampirism to make a political sociological allegory down to the vampire hunting team being an English teacher, a writer, a doctor, and a, and a preacher, and a sheriff. Like, the, the vampire hunting team is yeah. the same team as, as, as the team in Salem's Lot. And a lot of the same themes and a lot of the same events actually happen. Uh, and Flanagan is, is a huge Stephen King fan. I wouldn't say it copies Salem's Lot, and I wouldn't say it rips off Salem's Lot. I would say that it, it pays homage to the Salem slot on purpose as well. Okay. And that's that's one of the reasons I think that the black dog thing comes into play is because there's a very there's a very similar instance in Salem's lot where there's like a town drunk that like runs the local cemetery and has a black dog and like the big black dog is the only emotional connection this guy has in the world and then the vampires kill it early on in the story and and that is used as a tragedy to like demonstrate like the cruelty and meanness of a small town it's very very similar circumstances under which the dogs die okay yeah i haven't seen salem's lot so if you go into midnight mass you're gonna need that uh, content warning there there's uh, a lot of animal cruelty yeah yeah in like the first episode, a beach full of dead cats washes up. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, yeah. the the vampire's living off uh, cats and rats on the island whenever yeah. it first gets there because it can't afford to go around eating the people. Yep. So this is a thing I've seen in other vampire lore. If we're going to continue talking about uh, pop culture for the moment, which, which I'm happy to do. Are you familiar with the film Let Me In, Let the Right One In? I have not seen it, but I am familiar with it. It's a Swedish, uh, originally a Swedish novel. I'm not going attempt to pronounce the author's name because I wouldn't come anywhere close. It's a Swedish novel about a young child vampire, and that uses a lot of similar elements from from Slavic folklore, including blood rituals, the way animals interact with vampires, especially dogs and cats. That's a really good instance that, that uses vampirism quite well. There's a Romanian flick called Strigoi, Mm-hmm. Strigoi is a, is a Romanian word for vampire. That's a really good indie flick where a guy comes back to his hometown, which is a small Romanian village, because I think his uncle or his grandpa died. And he comes back to find a lot of the local villagers like sitting up with the corpse to make sure it doesn't become a vampire. And then events flow from there. Mm-hmm. There's a book series, comic book series, and TV series by Guillermo del Toro and Chuck Hogan called The Strain, where an Armenian survivor of the Nazi death camps hunts vampires both in post-World War II Europe and in modern-day New York City. And there's some interesting things there. Uh, those vampires can't come out in the sunlight, so that's that's a, a Western thing. But mm-hmm. the vampires in The Strain are really interesting in that they have tongues with stingers on the end of them, and they use their tongues the way frogs do. So the vampire will stand some ways off, and it will launch a big, stretchy, tentacle-like tongue. At the end of that tongue is a stinger, 
And the idea is that Stinger hits you uh, and infects you with, with vampirism and drains you of your blood. That's interesting because in a lot of the old folklore, you have to disable a vampire's tongue by putting a, a coin underneath it or by staking it to the jaw because the tongue is actually what the vampire uses to drink blood. Okay. Right? Yeah, that's interesting. They, they do an interesting thing there. Um, there is a Russian novel and film series called Night Watch, which is about, I think, vampire cops policing the supernatural underworld. So, like, it's about a vampire who, who's like a cop with this secret government agency that, like, makes sure that witches and werewolves and, and demons all, like, stay in line. Okay. Uh, that one, uh, th- that that movie series is pretty good. Pretty good if you if you don't mind uh, foreign films. Um, it's very good. That reminds me of a show we watched on Netflix called Trece, and it's a okay. Fili- I haven't seen this one. It's a Filipino cartoon, and the eponymous character Trece is kind of like a supernatural cop. She keeps the peace between the supernatural and the human world. And it's got all kinds of Filipino mythology in there, I think, including the Manangal, but I could be wrong. Which, the Manangal is the uh, Filipino vampire. Yeah, I'm gonna have to write this down so I can watch this one as well. T-R-E-S-E. There's, of course, the Castlevania Netflix series that takes a lot from the video games and a lot from the Dracula myth, which brings us around to, to the elephant in the room, which is Dracula and its followers. Dracula traces its lineage to the Vlad Tepish uh, sort of... Ooh, how to define Vlad Tepish. Most of what people know about Vlad Tepish is more myth than actual history. So, like, I'm tempted to call him, like, a mythic warrior. Almost like a like a god king. Uh, because most of the historical acts that are attributed to Vlad Tepish are sort of embellished or romanticized. Right. So so we're talking about Vlad the Impaler, who was a mm-hmm. prince of Wallachia. Wallachia is uh, was at one time a powerful nation in uh, Central and Eastern European politics located in Transylvania. Now for people who don't know, who haven't been there or just aren't that familiar... Transylvania is not a country in and of itself. Transylvania is an area of Eastern Europe that sits between the borders of uh, Romania and Hungary. It kind of straddles the border on both Mm -hmm. sides of Romania and Hungary and sits in that area. So Transylvania is a region of Eastern Europe in the same way that I would say like Appalachia is a region of the United States. Does that make sense? Uh, So it has its own cultural identity, its own geographic borders, its own internal and external facing politics, but it's not a set defined independent nation. Transylvania has a a reputation for bloodshed and spookiness because in the ongoing on and off conflicts between the, the Christians of Western and Central Europe and the Islamic nations of the, the Middle East and, and Turkey coming up through Eastern Europe, that's where the battles happened. Okay. What Vlad Tepish is actually famous for is holding that border. Okay. Uh, and where he becomes known as, as Vlad the Impaler, he's known for impaling Muslim combatants and prisoners of war as like a, a show of force. Now, he's called Vlad the Impaler, and that sounds wild to us, right? But one thing I would mention is that uh, that wasn't 
like wildly unique to him. Vlad Tepish and Paling Prisoners of War is not like a unique thing that he made up that makes him particularly more brutal than any other small-time feudal lord uh, yeah. in, in Central or Eastern Europe at the time. It's actually a pretty common thing. People, You can literally call them warlords, but it has a different connotation today. Back then, uh, being a warlord was something different, but it's actually a thing warlords did at the time, right? Yeah, and I know it's a thing that's continued in forward in history, like when pirates were a big deal yeah a lot of port towns would have pirate skeletons or dead decaying bodies hung up in cages in the bay to like as a signal to warn other pirates Mm -hmm. you can still see the cages over the uh london bridge they they have them there for like uh historical and and like tourist purposes for educational purposes you can see the the cages where they used to hang pirates yeah so there's my popular culture right so because transylvania and Vlad Tepish have that history. Stoker uses them for his novel. He makes up some stuff for dramatic effect. He makes up some stuff for narrative effect. And that novel becomes, you know, the most popular like piece of horror literature in English, like of all time, right? Uh, the, yeah. the character who has been most portrayed in media is Dracula. I think Sir Christopher Lee still holds the record today for portraying dracula the most times i hope nobody breaks that record he's my favorite personal dracula right uh, yeah I, I think he, he's he's the best actor to do the role uh followed closely by i think uh i think grant mctavish does a really terrific job uh as okay. a voice actor with the character and that creates a lot of what we know as vampire myth today sometimes other stuff gets brought over and merged. There's another historical aspect I would like to mention. So you can see like our pop culture conversation is blending into to the historical conversation. So so another historical one I want to highlight that listeners have probably been sitting here saying, why hasn't he mentioned this? Uh, <laughs> is Elizabeth Bathory. Yeah. Right? Elizabeth Bathory is a really fascinating historical character. And first and foremost, I want to say that was not her name. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Um, that that's an anglization of her name. Uh, her name was Elizabeth Bathory. Okay. She was a countess in not the exact same place, but the same general area of the world, mm-hmm. the, the Balkan region of the world. And... Uh, she is most famous for something that we have absolutely no evidence for. Yeah. Uh, so she is most famous for kidnapping and draining the blood of hundreds or thousands, depending on the story you hear, of peasant girls in her kingdom. We have no evidence whatsoever that there were widespread disappearances of girls in the lands controlled. Mm-hmm. by Countess uh, Elizabeth Battery. We have no evidence that she drank the blood or bathed in the blood of anyone. What we do have evidence in is that she controlled an extremely critical political border between the Islamic territories and the Christian territories, and that she expressed some political, philosophical, religious ideas that I would define as like a reluctant tolerance or a reluctant curiosity about Islam. Do you see where okay. I'm going with this? Yeah. Yeah. Elizabeth Batori was a woman who controlled a really important political location 
and she didn't automatically hate every Islamic idea she heard. Yeah. So, Azabit Bathory was removed from power by the other male feudal lords in, in the nation she ruled in, and she ends up dying in, uh, in an asylum. Oh, that's not surprising. So, everything I just said, all of our listeners should know to take with a, a bit of a grain of salt, because... The records we have around this are absolutely abysmal, and we're piecing things together, not out of wild speculation. What we're doing is we're taking cultural context that we know existed due to other historical documents that provide us uh, a religious, political, cultural context. So we know what the times were like because we've read it in the people who lived during that time. We've read it in their own words. So we've got an idea of what they saw their world being like. And we have records that indicate what happened and what was said during court cases and political letters that were sent back and forth between leaders, right? Yeah. And one thing I would remind listeners of, and and this extends to today, when someone's going to commit a crime or an injustice, they usually don't write out a letter that says, hey, bro, let's kill ours a bit. What do you say? Right? We're not going to get something that's that definitive in in the historical record. The same way, for instance, when you're going to try to, say, impede a democratic process to install yourself as dictator, you don't write in a letter, please seize power illegally and break the Logan Act on this date at this time, right? Yeah. You're not going to get something that solid because people don't write down when they're going to commit things like this. Exactly. I will say there are some people that do write down their stuff, but that's generally like people who go in intending to die in the process of doing what they're trying to do. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. If you're, if you're trying to make a statement, yeah. Yeah, it's usually not a letter that they like send outright or they might mail it the day that they're planning to do their thing to a newspaper agency or something. Right. But yeah, nobody like plans a coup in so many (laughs) words. And clear emails and text messages. Yeah. So that's a thing that I'll point people to about the story of Elizabeth Bathory. There are a bunch of movies about her losing her mind and and her depraved debauchery and torture of these peasant girls. There's there's no historical evidence that that any of that shit ever happened. All right, that's good to know. Just some more um, mudslinging on women in power. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, no. It's entirely like a patriarchal coup. Yeah. Arzabeth Bathory comes into power and rules that political region because her husband was the feudal lord, died in battle against the, the Muslims. Mm-hmm. And so so she took power in the castle. I was going to ask, what's the purpose of the vampire myths? Like, why do you think they exist? Yeah, this is good. The two best writers on the subject, bar none, are Dr. Thomas Garza, who teaches down at the University of Austin, mm-hmm. and Dr. Jan Perkowski, who I believe used to teach at the University of Virginia. Those are the two single best anthropological slash historical writers on the subject. The treatise on the subject is The Darkling by Jan Perkowski. I have that book sitting in front of me. It's a small white book. It's kind of expensive now because it's an academic book written for anthropologists. It's only about like 115 pages. 
And oh, it's, okay. it's not that actually that popular of a subject. And the reason I, I know those two names so intimately is, as, as we've discussed, I think, uh, in the intro episode, once upon a time, I was a history PhD candidate focused on Russian folklore and superstition. I was hoping one of those two people would be my, my, my dissertation advisor. Oh, nice. But, so that's why I know their, their work so intimately. Uh, Thomas Garza, in particular, has done a number of videos, and I think his Intro to Vampire course at the University of Texas at Austin, I think he's actually put his lectures up on YouTube for free for people to watch. Oh, that's awesome. So that leads me to answer your question, which was, what's the purpose of, of a vampire culture? So there is a little bit of belief that it could be about epidemiology and hygiene. It could be about preventing disease outbreaks because proper treatment of dead bodies, proper isolation of dead bodies, the use of garlic all have medicinal implications, right? And, and cultural implications. Yeah. I mentioned earlier that a core Slavic belief is that an evil person in life will be an evil person in death. And being an evil person in life is as a pretty sure sign you'll come back as a vampire. It's a parable about making sure that you live morally in your lifetime, right? It's a socio-religious tool to enforce religious morality, specifically Eastern Orthodox uh, Christian morality. That worldview is a core purpose of vampire myths. Right. It also has a lot to do with, like, social surveillance. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Yeah. A poet wrote the phrase that tall fences make good neighbors, I think. So the belief here would be the opposite of that. The best way to maintain community is by having people watch each other. That's what I mean when I say social surveillance. Your neighbors are checking up on you. Your family is checking up on you, making sure you're always acting according to the moral belief that your society has, and you're doing the same for them. You're always doing the same thing for your neighbors. And that's why vampires are especially known in Slavic culture to come after family members. They don't just rove the countryside looking for any victim they find. They always come after family. So a big portion of it is about social surveillance and community self-policing. Mm -hmm. So then the last point of that I'll make, according to our theme of like differences, in the Western tradition, the vampire is very sexy, right? Yeah. In less than 120 years, you go from Dracula to True Blood. Yeah. True Blood being like like 100% soft core porn about vampires. Yeah. So vampires have a moral ambiguity to the point that like they're the romantic heartthrob leads in young adult romance novels. In Slavic mythology, that's not there at all. In Slavic mythology, the vampire is not this granite statue with sparkling skin that will love you forever. A vampire is like a reeking half-rotted dead corpse that's going to eat you, which, depending on your personal preferences, might be more sexy to you. <laughs> no kink shaming here. No kink shaming here. But in the Slavic interpretation, the vampire is not intended to have 
a sexual allure, mm-hmm. which is a big part of the Western tradition is that the vampire lures their victims in with like sexiness. Um, yeah. That's not a, a Slavic thing at all. Vampires are not intended to be like traditionally sexually attractive, right? They're strictly evil, repugnant beings. Yeah. That's got me through most of the research and the reading I've done at a high level. For more information on the subject of Slavic vampires, uh, number one, you got to find a copy of The Darkling by Jan Perkowski. I wish you luck in that. Uh, It's kind (laughs) of hard to find. I was given it as a gift whenever a professor I knew died. And their widow was dividing up their their books to people they knew. And, and I was given several of the vampire books from their collection. That's how I got my copy, uh, if that tells you how how hard to find the, the, the book is. Mm-hmm. The next thing you can do, a bunch of Thomas Garza's writing. He's probably the, the most prolific academic writer on the subject. A lot of his writing... It's actually an open source. A lot of his stuff is, you know, in anthropological journals behind a paywall on JSTOR, right? Mm-hmm. But a lot of his stuff is also in open source. So, so that's that's where I would I would point our our listeners to uh, to just Google Jan Perkowski and Thomas Garza's writing, um, and you can you can find uh, they'll go into a little bit more detail. They'll have uh, specific stories, including like up to like names and records, right? Mm-hmm. Of uh, of vampires, they'll have names and dates and exact crimes committed by vampires and things like that. We have now reached towards the end of my prepared remarks. So, so Loki, do you have anything else that, that pops to mind that we should we should let our viewers know, or, or not our viewers, our, our listeners know about? Not off the top of my head. All right, so I will conclude this, dear listeners, by saying throw a little bit of garlic under your pillow, tie a towel around your neck, and keep a close eye on those you know who might be a little on the assholic side <laughs> or people like my dear friend loki here who are born with a set of teeth because uh you never know whenever something's going to to come bump for you in the night i'm never going to die that's the lesson we've learned Thanks so much for listening. If you want to support us, you can make a one-time donation on Acast using the Acast supporter feature, or you can make a monthly donation at co-fi.com slash luckilycryptids, all one word. We'd also appreciate if you could follow the show on Twitter at luckilycryptids, all one word. Podcast is edited by Alex Wimmer, who also composed the theme song. You can find them on Twitter or Bandcamp at wokeupfuzzy, all one word. Our logo art is by Extinct Inks, and you can find their work at extinctinks.net. This podcast is transcribed by R.B. Lemoyne. You can find him on Twitter at R.B. Lemoyne. And you can find Lee on Twitter at at inknerd, I-N-K-T nerd, all one word. You can find Loki Thursdays through Saturdays at twitch.tv slash desert trash opossum, all one word, or on Twitter as a desert trash poss, two S's, all one word.